Horican Baptist Church exists to see God glorified, the church edified, and our community served by declaring and displaying the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to John chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 9 through 14, and today we're actually going to still be in verse 14 going to verse 18. The reason we we did that is because last week we only looked at really the first half of verse 14. We we talked about how the Word became flesh and the Christmas miracle. And, And really the first 18 verses of the book of John are just his introduction And I'll tell you, on a normal weekly basis, we're not just going to be looking at two or three verses at a time. We're going to be looking at big chunks. So that next week, I actually have planned to look at more verses in the sermon next week than we have in the first four sermons of this journey through the book of John. But the first 18 verses are so jam-packed with deep thoughts about God that we couldn't just do them all in one sermon, even though it really is one thought. So we're picking up in verse 14. Um, and get ready for that where, we, where we're going to do a lot more verses. But in the meantime, we're going to finish John's introduction to his book as John tries to personally introduce us to the only true God of the universe. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and we'll dive in. Dear Lord, help us to turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak. For you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When I say the word of the Lord, will you say thanks be to God? The word of the Lord? Amen. Amen. Oswald Chambers once said, There is only one way by which I can get right with God, and that is through the death of Jesus Christ. I must get rid of the underlying idea that I can ever be right with God because of my obedience. Who of us could ever obey God to absolute perfection? I like to waste a lot of time watching good TV shows and good movies, so Katie and I were looking through Netflix the other day and trying to find a new show, and, and on Netflix you can watch the previews of the show very easily, so as we're flipping through the different shows, we're watching the trailers one by one, and we stumbled upon one show about a girl who was raised in an ultra-Orthodox community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. She was an Orthodox Jew. She is living in an unhappy arranged marriage, and the trailer showed her fleeing the country with only a handful of possessions. And and later, she's having this conversation with these people in a different country, and and she is asked, You escaped, didn't you? The main character responded, You make it sound like I was in prison, weren't you? No, but I left without telling anyone. Why did you leave? The main character responded, God expected too much of me. I wonder if today there's anyone in here who can relate Do you feel that God expects too much of you? I'm still trying to figure out the culture here in the Adirondacks, but in the South, a lot of Christianity is just don't drink, don't chew, and don't hang out with girls who do. Now, now that may be good advice to some, but, but those things will not get you into heaven. Christianity is not a rule book for good people. It's grace for wicked people. And look, the, rule of the, Bible, the rules of the Bible are good and true and sweet, but if we reduce the scriptures to living the right way, then we're destined to end up like this girl 
who hated her religion and fled from her family and her religion and her God. And it should be no surprise to us that after years and years of teaching the Bible as a rule book for life, rather than the source of life, that a generation of young people are walking away from the faith, at least in the West. So let me ask you, what is your Christian life like? Are you just trying to follow the rule book that God has given you? Or do you go to the Bible to find life? Do you go to the Bible to find grace and forgiveness? Is grace still amazing to you or has it gotten old? Can you sing that song that we just sung with it still being true in your heart? When you tell people about your faith, do you tell people to repent without telling them about the grace of Jesus? That's a problem. The good news is is that in John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18, we find the grace and forgiveness of God, true Christianity. Uh, I'll say real quick, I make the bulletins that we hand out at this church, and so far I've messed up something in the handouts this week, and I'll I'll confess to you that I messed up some again. Does anybody know what I messed up this week? The phone number. No, the phone number's right. Is it the old phone number? Okay, well, I messed up two things. (laughs) Good job. You get you get extra points. But what I what I really messed up is the title. I didn't I didn't insert my title, I just put title. But if I had remembered the title, it would have read The Grace of Christ Alone. That would be the title of the sermon. Because my prayer this morning is that you would receive the grace of Christ alone, both the believer and the non believer. My prayer is that the believer would be able to rest in the grace of Christ, and that the non believer would be saved by the grace of Christ. Because in this passage, we're going to find two declarations about Jesus. Two declarations about Jesus. The first declaration is this. The grace of Jesus is better than the law of Moses. We're going to find that in verses 14 through 17. The second declaration is this. Jesus alone reveals the Father to us. We're going to find that in verse 18. But starting with that first declaration, the grace of Jesus is better than in the, great, in the law of Moses. Look with me, if you will, to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We talked about the Christmas miracle last time in the first half of this verse, but now we're going to focus on the second half. John remarks that we have seen his glory. And when I read this, I thought, what on earth does it mean that we have seen his glory? I think John is using this strange phrase that his Jewish readers would have gotten instantly thinking back to Exodus 33 that we read earlier in the service. I think what John is doing is describing Jesus the same way that God was described in Exodus. But there's a big difference between how God is described in Exodus and how Jesus is described in this gospel. For example, Moses asked to see the glory of God and God hides him in a cave and lets him just see the afterglow of his glory. And then after that, Moses' hair turns white and his face shines for three days. So much so that people can't even look at him because his face is so bright that Moses has to go around with a dark veil to keep the brightness away from people so that he can talk to people. That doesn't happen in the New Testament with Jesus. People don't shine for three days when they encounter Jesus. They don't have to wear veils over their face. And Jesus is never described as a particularly handsome or beautiful or awesome to look at. You may think maybe when we see Jesus and how beautiful he is, that's his glory. But actually in Isaiah, when Isaiah predicts that the Messiah would come, he wrote this, the Messiah will have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should have any desire in him. 
If you look at pictures of Jesus today, I grew up in a religion where pictures of Jesus were everywhere. Uh, Jesus is the most attractive man on the planet in these pictures. He's got light brown hair, deep blue eyes, a jawline that would put any other model out of business. And, And these unrealistic pictures of Jesus are nothing like the Jesus of history. But if the glory of Jesus is really not about his appearance or what he looked like, then what is the glory of Jesus about? New Testament scholar D.A. Carson is actually very helpful on the subject. On this verse, he wrote, But as John proceeds with his gospel, it becomes clearer and clearer that the glory of Jesus displayed was not seen by everyone. When he performed a miracle or sign, he revealed his glory. We see that in chapter 2, verse 11. But only his disciples will put their faith in him. The miraculous sign was not itself unshielded glory. The eyes of faith were necessary to see the glory that was revealed by the sign. Then as the book progresses, the revelation of Jesus' glory is especially tied to Jesus' cross and his resurrection that follows. And certainly only those who have faith see the glory of God in the word made flesh in these events. The glory of Jesus is hidden from most, but this hiddenness is revealed by John and the early witnesses who can say, we have seen his glory. And that's D.A. Carson. So here's the point, I think. This passage, the same glory which God had in the Old Testament, God the Father, Jesus has, which tells us what? That Jesus and the Father are one. That Jesus is the eternal God from Exodus 32. And that's why we can sing in Christmas time, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. This is the glory that Jesus has as the only eternal Son of God. He didn't become the Son when He took on flesh, but He was the everlasting Son, and He came full of grace and truth. But look back in verse 14. Why does John use these two words, grace and truth? Why doesn't he just say Jesus is full of grace? Why doesn't he say Jesus is full of truth? Well, I think, once again, thinking in Exodus, as John is, when Moses was in the cave, the Lord passes by him, and the Lord speaks to Moses while he's in the cave, and he says, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, John's Bible was not in English, and it wasn't even in Hebrew. John's Bible was actually a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in John's Bible, that passage would read that God is grace and truth. John is identifying the Old Testament God as the God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in grace and truth. Jesus is the God of all grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace is different than mercy. Because, let me say this, mercy is not getting what you deserve, while grace is getting what you don't deserve. And that may sound confusing, so let me give you an example. If I were to go up to Keith and slap him in the face, which I wouldn't do that because he could take me in a fight. This is not a threat. This is an illustration. So if I go up to Keith and slap him in the face, him not hitting me back would be the mercy of Keith because I'm not getting what I deserve. However, if I went up and hit Keith and instead of him hitting me back, he gave me five bucks, that would be the grace of Keith, right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve while grace is getting what you don't deserve. So our God is merciful and not sending us to hell and not condemning us. But he is also gracious in all the gifts he gives, namely Jesus and eternal life. And all this happens because of the work of Jesus on the cross. God doesn't show up, um, God doesn't show us grace because our sin is not a big deal. Sin is such a big deal that Jesus died 
for our sins. And based on the work of Jesus, God freely gives grace. And that's how Jesus is full of grace. But how is Jesus now full of truth? Well, remember, we have to think back to Exodus. And I think it makes more sense to understand this word truth as as that Old Testament term, faithfulness. That Jesus is full of faithfulness, which means the same thing in John's mind. So when God is described as faithful in the Old Testament, it means that he keeps his promises. Because Jesus is the infinite, almighty God from all eternity. He does not change or go back on his promises. He is full of faithfulness. Which is great because if we have a God who's only full of grace, but is not faithful, then one day he may change his mind and go back on his promises. But we have a God who does not change, is faithful, and continues forever to show grace. A.W. Pink once wrote, However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, who could trust in him? But all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. Amen, somebody. Our God is full of grace and truth, mercy and faithfulness. This is the Jesus we worship, the one who is full of grace and truth. Now you see why we had to go back to verse 14. We couldn't just go on to verse 15. But now let's move on to verse 15. Look with me back to the text. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Two weeks ago, we talked about how we as Christians are witnesses like John the Baptist. And you may ask, what does it mean to be a witness? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you look at verse 15, he bore witness and he cried out. He is a witness when he is crying out or declaring the message of Jesus. This is probably obvious to some of you, to many of you, but I bring this up because there's this popular idea within Christian circles that you can share the gospel solely by the way you live your life. You probably heard the popular phrase, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. I've seen it on t-shirts, coffee mugs, and Instagram. And I have to say that this idea is foreign to the New Testament. We can display the effects of the gospel by living holy lives, but we must also declare the gospel with our mouths. The gospel is news to be shared, not simply a better life to be lived. Imagine if someone, um, imagine if someone, um, instead of whenever you watch the news, that instead of having reporters tell you what happened, you only got a video of people living their lives. It'd be meaningless. There, there's no information here for me. No, no, there's no meaning unless someone explains what's going on. The gospel is news and it's the news of the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we're called to cry out like John and to declare the gospel. Now let's look at what John's message was. Look back to verse 15. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist uses the military term of rank to describe his relationship to Jesus. Like how a general ranks before a private, Jesus ranks before John. From Malachi to Matthew, there were no prophets. Then John shows up really as the last Old Testament prophet. And before John, there was 400 years of silence. And finally, we have a word from God. That's how important John is. Even Jesus spoke of John saying, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist even rightly acknowledges that Jesus ranks before him. 
But then John says that Jesus is both before him and after him. Those terms have nothing to do with rank, but of timing. Let me ask, who came first, John the Baptist or Jesus? John the Baptist came first, absolutely. In one sense, John came six months before Jesus because he was his cousin, born before him. And John the Baptist even starts his ministry much earlier than Jesus. So why does John say that Jesus was before him? Because John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer are saying the same things in verse 1 and in verse 15. Jesus is the forever existing eternal God of the universe. And then John the Gospel writer wants to expand on the words of John the Baptist. And look at what he says in verse 16. He says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. What does it mean when John wrote from his fullness? It's a very strange phrase. Well, he probably meant the same thing that Paul meant when he wrote in Colossians, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. And that makes perfect sense in this passage. But then you look at the phrase grace upon grace, and you have to wonder, what does it mean grace upon grace? Why does he not just say grace? Why is he using these weird phrases? And I think that when John is using the phrase, we have all received grace upon grace, he is saying that we have received the grace of Jesus on top of the grace of the law of Moses. And you may say, how on earth did you get that out of verse 16? And that's a totally fair question. But here's why I think that when he's saying grace upon grace, he's comparing the grace found in Jesus to the grace given in the law of Moses. Here's why I think that. I have two reasons for coming to that conclusion. First, John has Exodus 33 in his mind. And in that passage, God is in the middle of giving Moses the law. While also telling Moses that he is a God of grace and forgiveness and faithfulness. God is a God of forgiveness, even in the Old Testament. So I think that's number one. John's thinking back to Exodus 33, and he's thinking about the God of grace in that chapter. And then also number two, I think this is really what convinced me why I think he's using this phrase. Number two, I think that John explains what the ambiguous and vague phrase grace upon grace means in verse 17. So he uses this phrase, grace upon grace, and if you're wondering what does that mean, he says, look at verse 17. So look with me there, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Every time God interacts with mankind, he is bending down to our level, like a parent lovingly bending down to explain something to a child. Because of our sin, truly we don't deserve for God to speak to us ever. So, so when we saw God giving mankind the law, it was an act of unmerited favor. We were getting something that we did not deserve. It can be categorized as grace. The law was a good thing. And God told the Israelites, if you be my people and follow these laws, I'll bless you. But what happens in the Old Testament? They almost never follow the law. Right after God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the people get impatient that Moses is on the mountain for too long and they build a golden calf and they start worshiping that instead of God. The law is a grace given to man, so much so that in Psalm 1, David describes, so he says this, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. The law was never made to save anyone. The sacrificial system was only a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice to come. The dietary laws and the cleanliness laws and the laws of the priests were only given to Israel to prepare that nation for the coming of the Messiah. 
And then Jesus, who is greater than Moses, brings a grace that is greater than the law. He brings real healing and real forgiveness and real salvation while Moses only had the promise of salvation to come. Moses was a great hero of the faith. He was faithful to the Lord, led the Israelites out of Egypt, and then wrote the first five books of the Bible. Most people don't like the Bible, but people seem to at least appreciate the Ten Commandments. And hey, I love the commandments because I think they're good commandments that God has given us. But that is not all Christianity is. If our faith is just in the law, we are in trouble. I've heard a lot of people say they don't need Jesus because they're good people and they keep the Ten Commandments. But let's think about that for a second. Let's just start with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you loved anything more than God in your entire life? Even if you haven't worshipped a golden calf, have you ever loved money or status or even your family more than God? That's idolatry, and it's having another God before the God of the Bible, and that's breaking the first commandment. You look at the third commandment that says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Have you ever used God's name like a cuss word, saying, Oh my, G-O-D, or using Jesus' holy name as a cuss word? That's taking his name in vain. It's blasphemy. The fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You ever skip church? I have. Not because you had a flat tire, you were sick, or not feeling well, you had a legitimate excuse, but just out of neglect. I've broken all three of these commandments. And even though God's commandments are good, I am incapable of keeping them perfectly. You see, if you understand the law rightly, you should feel like God expects too much of you because the law is really meant not to show us how to live, but the law is most importantly shows us that we are sinners in need of a savior. St. Augustine on these verses says, The law threatens us, it does not help us. The law commands us, it does not heal us. The law made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth. You see, the law of God is a gift to us, but it's only like a mirror that we can look into a mirror and see dirt on our face. But the thing is, you can't grab the mirror then off the wall and try to clean yourself with with the mirror. That'd be absolutely ridiculous. That's not what the mirror was designed to do. You need to be cleaned by something else. And in this case, you need the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. It's not that the law was bad. We were given the law as the grace, by the grace of God, but the grace of Jesus is greater than the law of Moses. You see, the Bible says that everyone who does not keep the law is under a curse, but the book of Galatians tells us that Jesus became a curse on our behalf. And everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, so Jesus was hung on a tree as a curse on our behalf, and he took the burden and the curse of the law. He died for our law-breaking and then rose from the grave, leaving the burden of the law in his tomb. Now, anyone who turns from his sins and trusts in Jesus can receive the grace that comes from Jesus. Amen, somebody. The law is a good thing, but we cannot be saved by it. God bent down and gave us as a gift of grace, the law, but it was never designed to save us. The point in all these verses is that Jesus is greater than all who came before him. Moses raised his hands and the Red Sea split. But Jesus is greater than Moses. Elijah called for fire to rain down from heaven and fire came down. But Jesus is greater than Elijah. Daniel was thrown into a pit of hungry lions and was not eaten. But Jesus is greater than Daniel. 
John the Baptist was God's final faithful prophet of the Old Testament, but Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Amen, somebody. Our faith is not in any of these prophets. As great a men of God as they are, they were all sinners. They were all imperfect. But the grace that came through Jesus was greater than the grace that came through any of these other men. So not only is the grace of Jesus greater than the law of Moses, but also Jesus alone reveals the Father to us. Look with me to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has seen God, not one. Are you kidding? How is that even possible? If you've read the Old Testament, your question should be, well, who did Jacob wrestle with? Who appeared in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who did Isaiah see sitting on the Lord's throne? I'll say this. No one has ever seen the Father, because God the Father does not have a body. But if you look back at verse 14, it says that we have seen the glory of Jesus. John is drawing this parallel. We've seen the glory of Jesus, but in verse 18, no one has seen God. John is saying that anytime anyone has seen God, they saw the second person of the Trinity. And he's even more clear later when he says that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus in Isaiah 6. John even clarifies this, that when John saw the Lord sitting on the throne, he saw Jesus. And through the rest of John, we're going to see that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. We're going to hear Jesus say that whoever sees him, he has seen the Father. Because Jesus alone reveals the Father to us. If you look back at verse 18, John moves from describing the Father to describing the Son. After the phrase, no one has ever seen God, there's a semicolon. And it tells us that John is starting a new thought. There might as well be a period here. So verse 18, we have two sentences. First, no one has ever seen God, period. And we see the only true God, comma, and it says, it says, the only true God who is at the Father's side. Who's at the Father's side according to verse 1? Jesus, the Word. So it moves from no one has ever seen God, we say the Father. Then Jesus, the true God, is at the Father's side. And this should sound familiar once again because I think John is repeating what he's saying in verse 1 and verse 18. He started his introduction to the book by calling Jesus the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. And now he's ending his introduction by calling Jesus the only God who is at the Father's side. John is re-emphasizing that there is only one eternal God. That Jesus and the Father are both truly God. But that there is a distinction between Jesus and the Father. If you were here a few weeks ago when we began the book of John, we talked about the amazing truths of the Trinity. And I think that the Trinity is the only work, way that this verse makes sense. The Trinity is the belief that God, there, that God is one being who exists as three distinct persons. And this can be confusing for many because truly it's a mystery that I don't think can fully be understood by human reason. But it is clearly taught in the Bible. God is not such a small God that we can put him under a microscope and examine his parts. But God, by his grace, has revealed himself to us in his word. These things are deep, but they're not meant to confuse us. They're meant us to, to worship him. They're meant to lead us to worship. Bishop J.C. Ryle once wrote on this passage, These are deep and mysterious things, but they are true. And now, after reading this passage, can we ever give too much honor to Christ? Can we ever think too highly of him? Let us banish the unworthy thoughts from our minds forever. 
Let us learn to exalt him more in our hearts and to rest more confidingly the whole weight of our souls in his hands. Men may easily fall into error about the three persons in the Holy Trinity if they do not carefully adhere to the teaching of Scripture. But no man ever errs on the side of giving too much honor to the Son. Christ is the meeting point between the Trinity and the sinner's soul. Jesus is greater than all who came before him because he was before all. And we owe him all worship and everything that we have, everything that we are. Now look back to verse 18 and see what does Jesus do in this verse? He makes the Father known to us. Jesus is not only the giver of all spiritual life, but in his coming to earth, he has made the Father known to the world. No one can know God apart from Jesus. Even the saints in the Old Testament who never knew the name of Jesus, but one day they'll rise up into everlasting, everlasting life to praise the proclaimed Messiah from long ago. He is the one who shows us the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by Jesus. And there is no name under heaven by which men can be saved other than the sweet name of Jesus. Amen, somebody. That's why he's our Savior. That's why we focus on these great truths of the Bible. My prayer this morning was that you would find and receive the grace of Christ alone, both for the believer and the non-believer. Specifically, that the believer would be able to rest in the grace of Christ and the non-believer would be saved by the grace of Christ. In this passage, we found that the grace of Jesus is greater than the law of Moses and that Jesus alone reveals the Father to us. So let me ask, have you found God through Jesus? Are you just trying to follow the rule book that God has given you or do you find life in the scriptures? Do you go to the Bible to find grace and forgiveness? Or are you stuck in the law of Moses? Is grace still amazing to you? Or has it gotten old? When you tell people about the faith, what do you say? Is your focus on the law or is it on grace? After all this, do you still feel that God expects too much from you? Well, I have three pastoral charges for you. Three ways in which we can apply this text to our lives. First, first pastoral charge. Declare the gospel of the Son. Declare the gospel of the Son. Jesus left the glories of heaven to make the Father known to us. No missionary has gone further than Jesus went. No missionary has sacrificed more than Christ has sacrificed. No servant is above his master, and Jesus calls us to be witnesses who declare the gospel. I don't think that's a huge emphasis of the passage, but I feel like it's one of the implications. So I wanted to include it. We must declare the gospel of his son. Second pastoral charge. Embrace the grace of the law of Moses. Embrace the grace of the law of Moses. Now remember, the grace God showed when he gave the law of Moses as much less than the grace God gives in Jesus, but the law is still good and helpful to the Christian. We strive to live holy lives according to God's command, but the ultimate goal of the law is not for us to be perfect, but it's to point us to the perfect lawgiver who is perfect. The law works as a mirror to show us our sin, and it is a good thing to look at God's law and ask yourself, am I guilty of breaking this commandment? When you're confronted by the law and you realize that you are not only a sinner, but you're still a sinner, run to Jesus. When the Ten Commandments make you feel like a failure, remember that Jesus died for your failures. It is good to tremble at Mount Sinai because it leads us to Mount Calvary. There, this is also incredibly helpful when you think about evangelism. You may have heard the expression, you got to get someone lost before you can get them found. If a person thinks they're good enough without Jesus, then Christianity will be totally unappealing. 
Um, let me say, there, there's much more I wanted to say, but because we've already gone over with grace, I'm going to skip down a little bit. And, and there's, there's more, especially as we look at the book of John, but I think it's so helpful to walk someone through the commandments and said, have you broken this commandment? Have you broken this? And not to judge someone, but to say, look, you and I are guilty of breaking our, uh, the commandments. And it's only because of the law that we can see and understand our sin, both in our own lives and when we tell others the good news of Jesus. We need to embrace the grace that God has given us through the law of Moses. Third pastoral charge, trust in the grace of Christ alone. Trust in the grace of Christ alone. Jesus is the only way to God. You can't go to him on your own. If you somehow got to God without Jesus, then you would die because God says no one can see his face and live. Why? Because you and I have broken God's commandments and are deserving of his wrath. And we deserve to be thrown into a place the Bible calls hell. But Jesus has died for sinners like you and I. And then he conquered death so that we could receive the grace of the Father. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today, listen. Respond. Trust in Jesus today because grace is found in him alone. But this is not just for the non-believer. It's also for the believer who needs to rely on the grace of Jesus every day. When you fail... You need to preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself that Christ has died for your sins, past, present, and future. You need to be reminded of the love poured out from the wounds of Jesus. You don't just need it for yourself. Also, when a Christian sins against you, you don't just need to forgive them. You also need to remind them of the grace of God. Remind them of the gospel. When your wife sins against you, when your husband sins against you, when your children, when any when your other church members sin against you, remind them of the gospel. Forgive them and then and then also say, God and his son not sparing, sent him to die. We scarce can take it in. That on the cross our burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away our sin. If you're able, let's let's now stand and sing the great truth great truth of the gospel to one another. And turn to number thirty seven, how great thou art. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.